Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Funlessness with Jen Kirkman. This is my podcast. I am Jen Kirkman. I am a comedian. Episode 303 coming at you. Oh boy. Today we are going to talk about, well, I was going to do a live from the road kind of thing last week, but I didn't bring my portable rig with me and I thought, oh, I can just talk into my phone, but it didn't sound good. So I'm just going to do what life was like on the road last week. A real road diary, if you will. I'm going to talk about hanging out with my parents, hanging out with old friends, stories of idiots that I dated in high school getting arrested. Well, not plural, just one. And we've got some listener emails. I've got a movie, a new movie I'm obsessed with. It's a feel-good white person Hollywood shit, (laughs) and I'm not ashamed. And so much more on this week's Having Funlessness with Jen Kirkman. So let's get to it. Let me just, uh, so I'm recording from home. This is a, well, this is how it used to be, right? I would record these from home. And so I hope your, um, I hope the sound quality is okay. Maybe sound a little different than when I'm in the studio, but let's do it. I'll just run you down my tour dates really quick. I will be in Toronto this week at the Just for Laughs Festival. I have four stand-up shows. And I have a po- I'm have doing a live taping of Having Funlessness on Sunday, September 22nd, in the afternoon. I'm also a guest on two other podcasts. And I am a guest on a panel called Making It in Stand-Up Comedy. So if you want to see what we have to say about what, what goes into this business, come on down. Everything is on jenkirkman.com. 
Com, and you can get tickets right now. And if you are listening to this uh, this week, Wednesday through Friday, I have announced tour dates, San Francisco. I'm at Cobb's Comedy Club, one show, Sunday, November 17th. I am also coming to American Comedy Company in San Diego, one night only in January of 2020. And I'm at the Sacramento Punchline on January 2nd through 4th. All of those tickets go on sale this Friday. So if you want a reminder, go to jenkirkman.com and click on where it says Kirkmail. That's right. I was told by people, we don't want to join your newsletter. We don't want to support your career. We don't want to find out when you're performing. We just want to keep missing your shows and write, when you come into Texas, as I'm driving back from Texas. That's, that's what people seem to want to do. But somebody said, you call it an email blast. You call it a newsletter. We get enough emails. Now, I have never understood, and we'll get into it, how people are overwhelmed by emails. I mean, it's not snail mail. Anyway. So I said, fine. They said, you, you can't name it that. You have to name it something else. I go, fine, you guys name it. And all these people came up with names. The Laugh Line. I go, you're out of your fucking minds if you think people are going to be like, the Laugh Line, that sounds fun. And then people were like, yeah, call it Just Joking. And you can provide free content and videos and jokes. I go, what are you talking? It's a newsletter about when I'm performing. I'm trying to keep it simple. You open it. You look for the city. You click, oh, my city's not there. I'll wait till next week, see what's up. I'm, I'm, I'm now going to make videos and free content. What the fuck do you think my Instagram is and my podcast? Like, the, so I humored everyone, and someone renamed it Kirkmail. And then I looked at this guy's profile, and he is a writer. So I was like, well, that's why his was good. So I said, you got to get Kirkmail, right? That sounds fun. So um, I've renamed it. Now, will that make more people join? It hasn't. And so even though this guy came up with an awesome name, all the people that were like, I know how to do this, you're fucking wrong. Nobody knows anything. Okay, what a great way to start the podcast. I can see the iTunes reviews already. I tuned in because she's a comedian. This isn't funny. Oh, blow it out your ass. You know what? There's some people who love complaining. You know why? Because they don't have to complain in their heads for an entire hour. I'll do it for you. You relax. I'll complain for you. It might not be about stuff that you face in everyday life, but someone's complaining and you can sit there and think about birds. Anyway, where else can you see me perform? And I got to toot my own horn here. Toot, toot. I'm at the top of my fucking game. I love my new hour. And it's funny, I was talking um, to David Spade backstage because I did his show today. No big deal. Name drop. And we were joking about people who go, yeah, working on my new hour. And we're like, do you have a, oh, did you sell it to what, did Netflix give you a deal? No, no, it's just my new hour. Like, everyone says that. And by the way, we weren't making fun of these people. I don't have a deal. He doesn't have a deal. We were saying it's just funny that we all kind of, like, walk around saying, that. <laughs> yeah, it's my new hour. Well, where's it going to be? Uh, don't worry about it. So, but my new hour, which I hope does land somewhere, is my favorite. And my favorite thing about it is that I'm having so much fun. Like there's love and joy coming off of me. And even if, and there's no, it's not angry. And I talk about the differences between younger people and me and older people and me, but it's not from a place of hate. It's from, it's from what I think is the most beautiful aspect of life. The humbling aspect of life is at a certain point, your generation is not uh, the focal point of the world, right? And I, and, and you may not understand what's going on. 
and I don't know. I I'm I'm excited about I'm excited and scared about my age, and I feel very hashtag blessed that I get to talk to an audience about it. Uh, it feels really great, and that's my favorite angle about getting older. It's not young people are stupid. That I used to do comedy like that, and it's funny because when I was doing that when I was in my 30s, I was like, did I not know I was young? Um, and I think that's why I think I was feeling the fear of getting older and not being relevant. And now that I'm older and not relevant, I'm like, let's slide into it. You know, let's get Buddhist about it. Let's accept. Um, and I'm I'm just like so overwhelmed by the amount of men in my audience. I do a lot of material that's inclusive, but to educate men about the different world that women live in that they maybe don't know about. And men are being awesome about it. This dude came up to me after my show in Boston and said, I'm a 45-year-old straight white guy. I love when guys say that to me like I can't see. I'm like, I, I see. Well, not that I could see if someone's straight or not, but I can see that you're a 45-year-old white guy. <laughs> They're like, let me um, announce. And he said, I got dragged here by my girlfriend. Now, I didn't, did I need to hear that part? No. I mean, you could just say, oh, my girlfriend brought me. I didn't know your work. But now I'm like picturing them having a conversation and she's saying, you want sex later? Then you come with me to Jen Kirkman's show. Oh, come on. Don't, don't manipulate me. I'm going to. You never do anything. And just a big argument. She's not funny. I would have heard of her. She's not famous. You know, just, I just picture them spending an hour getting ready for the show while he's just hurling insults at me. So he said, uh, and now I'm a convert. I'm your biggest fan. And I hear that from guys all the time after my shows. And it warms my heart because... Because, I don't know, I mean, we don't have to use comedy to educate, uh, certainly not. I think it's just, it's whatever you want it to be. And I go through phases. Sometimes it's pure entertainment, sometimes it's pure shock value, sometimes it's educational. I don't know, it just depends on what I'm going through. And right now, because what I'm talking about on stage is personal, personal, <laughs> it feels very validating to be uh I don't know it just feels good so I really appreciate it um should I tell you my other tour dates let's just run them through really quick you're up I'm a coming somebody tweeted me well you're probably not coming to London anytime soon because of Brexit I'm like can you just go to my website why would Brexit stop me? The, by the way, Brexit, the last time you guys Brexited yourselves, the first, you know, it was like a couple years ago, I was flying to London the next day, and I had no idea how it would impact me if it did. And, and I didn't realize then that the vote doesn't mean the thing took place the next day. And I'm thinking, <laughs> will my passport still work? Are they part of the UK? Are they not? What's going to happen? I'm going to Italy a few days later. Will, I, it, will it be like entering an entirely other continent? You know, I don't know what's happening. But it turned out it was fine. Uh, I'm not a fan of Brexit, but thankfully I don't talk about it in my act because I don't, I'm not up on it enough. And you certainly don't need to hear my opinions. But Brexit or not, Boris Johnson or not, is that his name? I'm coming to London. I book shows and then I let the world happen. Does that make sense? 
you don't cancel a show because of Brexit. So I will be in London at the Soho Theater. Oh, God, back now, I think my seventh time, September 29th through October 5th. That is a Monday through a Saturday run. The show is at 8.45 p.m. It is one hour. There is no opening act. Come, laugh, do your thing. After the show, yeah, you can get a picture with me. I'm going to be selling copies of my comedy album, which is really just a download card. It's the size of a credit card. So there you go. Uh, cash only. I don't, my square reader doesn't work overseas. Why am I getting into this much detail? I don't know. So London, Soho Theater, Manchester, one night. That's where my people are from. The Kirkmans are Manchester folk. I will be there as part of a comedy festival for women. And then Tuesday, my debut in Amsterdam, Tuesday, October 8th at Boom Chicago. Don't fly to Chicago. It's just called Boom Chicago. And then my other debut in Oslo, Norway. I cannot fucking wait. Um, October 13th. That is a Sunday night. So all of this is on jenkirkman.com right there on the homepage. Or you can go to jenkirkman.com and click tour if you like to take extra steps. And then, oh my God, Los Angeles, September 26th. I will be at the Dynasty Typewriter at the Hayworth. It's confusing. It's called the Hayworth Theater, but the venue calls itself Dynasty Typewriter. So whatever. Tickets are only 10 bucks in advance. They're 15 at the door. So why don't you get them in advance? No drink minimum. Blah, blah, blah. Then other cities coming up in November and December. Again, San Francisco, Oklahoma City, Milwaukee, Durham, North Carolina, Richmond, Virginia. Richmond and Durham are a little bit of a Christmas show aspect, so that's going to be really fun. And then the Jen Kirkman Dysfunctional Christmas Show, star-studded on December 13th. So all tickets on sale now, jenkirkman.com. And if you join that newsletter, you're going to hear about some other dates coming up in 2020, which includes Spokane, Washington, Bloomington, Indiana, and New York City. Ooh, ooh. All right. 12 minutes in. Have I said anything funny? No. So. I'm on the plane. Let's begin my tour review in chronological order. I'm on JetBlue. I'm flying where am I going? New York City. And I have some writing to do. I'm still uh, working on this uh, Hallmark movie, and I have an outline. That's, that's the stages of things they make you do. So I'm, I'm still working on my outline. And I just couldn't think anymore, and I thought, I'm just going to watch a movie. So I picked a movie. I went to new releases. And it was called The Best of Enemies. And I've never heard of this story or these people, but it appealed to me because I'm a sucker for uh, a based on a true story race relations thing. I'm a, I'm a sucker for anything, really. I, I enjoy watching stuff except for violence and supernatural superhero stuff. So it's about, and this is, so what was amazing about this movie, and I'm this is spoiler central, so fast forward if you don't want spoilers. But what I loved about this movie is that I'm watching it going, well, that's embellished. That didn't fucking happen. Okay, calm down. Nobody does that. And I looked it up after, and every single detail is exactly true. And I know that it is because they did a documentary 
about these two people and I watched that after and they they talk about all of these things. Um, they did the documentary way before the movie came out. The two people involved are now deceased, but it corroborates everything I saw in the movie. And then there's a book about it, which I have ordered. So I'm sitting on the plane crying and I love the movie because it gave me hope and it, and it, I don't know. So I don't know if this could happen today. And if you want to weigh in on the discussion, please email me at iseemfun at gmail.com. I'll read it next week or the week after. You tell me what you think. So in this movie, it takes place in 1971 in Durham, North Carolina. Again, shout out to Durham. I have two shows at Motorco <laughs> on Saturday, December 7th. But that's not what the movie's about. Imagine if it was. Now, I think the only part of the movie that was fictionalized is the inciting incident, which is that a black elementary school burned down. I don't think that happened in real life, but the point is the town was trying to decide whether they should integrate schools. And there is an activist named Anne. I can't remember anyone's last name. I'm going to look it up so that I can give her her due. Um, Anne, best of enemies. Do you love when I do this? I know that uh, Anne Atwater. So Anne Atwater is a black activist, civil rights activist. And there's a man named CP who is the president of the Durham chapter of the KKK. This guy, CP, clearly, obviously, hates black people. But this woman, Ann Atwater, can't blame her, hates white people. And she's <laughs> calling him a cracker. And she is, she's a real hot ticket. So in the movie, the town has to have a vote about if they want to integrate the schools. Now, this guy comes to town intellectual kind of guy and they do a thing called a charrette. I still don't quite understand how it works but they basically have 10 days to put together a series of levels of votes about integration. Literally they have 10 days. Not exaggerated. This is the truth. So basically both sides have to make their point about integrating or not. So this guy comes to town and he says he nominates Anne and CP to each be the point person for their side. But they have to work together to bring this. Imagine it's like a small Senate hearing or something to bring this charrette to order. And they're both like, I don't want to work with that person, you know. And through a series of really good storytelling, they both find themselves kind of up up against it where they really have no choice but to work together and how they sell it to CP the leader of the clan is look we're we're voting on whether in to integrate schools I know you don't want to don't you want your white people in the clan there's a black guy saying this and don't you want your white people in the clan to have a voice and CP is kind of like, what's going on here? Like, why are black people inviting me to have a voice in this? 
So he says yes, kind of side-eyeing the thing the whole time. Like, okay, I think you're being on the level here, but I'll do it. So Anne and him have to meet, and the I forget the guy that is putting it together, but he's also black. So CP won't sit down and have dinner with them in public. Now, this didn't happen in the movie, but I saw in the documentary that Anne brought a knife to their first meeting, and CP brought a machine gun. Okay, so this is the animosity levels we're talking about. So throughout the course of the movie, we also find out that CP has a, I think his son has Down syndrome, and he's uh, bad enough, bad off enough that he can't be taken care of at home. He's got a lot of emotional, developmental problems, and he's in a sort of like permanent hospital that he lives in. And he's, you know, stuck with a roommate, and he's acting up, and CP can't get the hospital to get his son a private room. And Anne sort of finds this out and behind CP's back she orchestrates that his son gets his own room. Now it's a little bit exaggerated but in real life he did have a developmentally disabled son and Anne did do something kind for him. So he finds out he's very emasculated um, and he's like I don't need you doing anything for me. She's like I do things for people that's what I do. I didn't do it for you it's just what I do. So they're having these meetings about things they want to bring to the hearings. And she says, well, I want to start every hearing with some gospel music. I want us all to sing. And he was like, that's Negro music. I don't want that. And she's like, well, you can bring some white shit <laughs> to the meeting. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to bring my Ku Klux Klan robes. And she's like, okay. Like, it's just so funny that that's in quotes, white culture. Like, oh, I hate groups robes. Okay, cool. She's bringing gorgeous gospel music. So there's this scene where CP catches Anne in the hallway uh, because all of this took place in a school, so they would use the auditorium as where they have their hearings. And these young black kids were um, ripping up the KKK pamphlets that CP had set out, and Anne stopped them and said, listen, don't do that. You have to know what they think. So you go read those pamphlets and educate yourselves about the Klan so that we know what we're up against. And, you know, that somehow trickled into CP's brain as a sign of respect. And he saw that happen. And you can see him, oh, okay. And so then uh, Anne is singing with the gospel choir and everyone's singing. And CP looks in and he seems really moved by it. Now, again, in the documentary, this is real. She said she knew CP was a good guy when she saw him tapping his foot to the music. But I'm watching it the whole time going, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, totally happened. Long story short, after 10 days of intensive involvement with the black community, can you imagine, this is the president of the Klan. He's been in it since he was a boy. He's been hating black people his whole life. There was never a moment he ever thought they were equal. He's walking around with a machine gun. After 10 days, he completely changes. So the movie ends with they have a final vote about integration. And the, uh, they're kind of outnumbered. So there was this whole other aspect where CP said, I don't want it just to be black people against white because there's too many of you and obviously you're going to win. I need some other people that are neutral. And they said, okay, fine. And, you know, they 
again, most of the people in the town, you know, the in quotes, good white people were fine with integration. So long story short, the night of the vote, it's actually hard to tell who's going to be triumphant. And at the last minute, I'm not sure how true this story point is, but at the last minute, a white woman who was going to vote in favor of integration changes her mind because she'd been getting threats from the Klan. So it comes down to one vote, and the last person who is voting is CP. And, you know, obviously, if you have half a brain and you've watched movies before, you're like, well, of course, he's going to vote for integration. He's going to have some kind of turnaround. But uh, you could see, if you were actually there, how you have, you have not watched it from a movie standpoint. You know nothing. You just know this is the president of the Klan. So if you're the real people in real life, you're probably sitting there thinking, we're not integrating, not today. CP's obviously going to vote no. So he gets up and he makes this speech. Again, I'm going, okay, great, great. I can see why the writers had to do this. This never happened. I looked it up. It totally happened. He gets up. He holds up his clan card. And all the good old boys, the clan's kind of there like they're all excited. They can't wait. They can't wait for him to vote no so they can whoop and holler. CP holds up his clan membership card and he tells a story. And this is what I think is the most fascinating part. Because there was a part in the movie where Anne says to him, you're not better than me. You're poor. You're a poor white guy. And you don't like that you're poor like the black people. You're not the rich white. You're poor. And it's very much what's going on in America today. This, in quotes, economic anxiety is the white guys who don't like that they didn't end up being better than people who they feel are lesser than them. Now, of course, CP owned a gas station. He could have let black people get gas at his gas station, but he didn't. It was restricted to whites. So he probably would have made more money if he let the other half of the population use his business. That's how much cutting off your nose to spite your face, that's how much anger and racism he had in him, was he'd rather just be poor than accommodate black people who need to get gas in their car. I mean, it's at that point, like, of course, it's hatred, but it's fear and it's ignorance. And it and that's what is so hopeful for me is that it's not just hatred. Hatred's really hard to tear down. But when it's about other things, and so what's explained is, and when, in, when I looked up their backstory, he had an alcoholic abusive dad. He never felt like he belonged. So the Klan, so he says this in his speech. He says the Klan, or maybe it was in the documentary, but basically the Klan gave him something to belong to. They asked him his opinions. And he felt like, hey, me, dumb fuck me, I'm the president of something? Like, cool. You know, it was so much more about that than it was about hating black people. And when I think about how tragic it is that the victims of racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia and all the isms in this world it, it almost would be one thing if it really were about hatred of them. I mean, it would be terrible, but it would be simpler. But the fact that so many people have to put up with just the lack of a psychological perspective from the people that hate them, you don't, it, it's, it's challenging and hopeful at the same time. That's like, you don't actually hate these people. You're scared, but no one's coming for you. We're all just trying to be here together. So any, anyway. 
You don't need my commentary. So CP gets up and says, I have this card because I hate black people. I don't believe they're equal. That's why I have this card. But I no longer think that, so I can't have this card anymore. And he rips up his clan card, and he leaves the clan. And everyone's like, what? Because, again, they didn't watch the, the whole movie that I've just seen. They... They didn't, they weren't part, they, they weren't privy to his thoughts and his, people are like, what the fuck, like blown away. And he explains, and again, I saw this in the documentary that, so he never was asked his opinion growing up. He's just some, you know, abused kid. And then I'm not trying to garner sympathy for him. I'm, I'm just trying to explain away the psychology. And then he starts working with black people who he hates and is threatening. He's th- constantly threatening them and they want to hear him. I mean, they don't, but I mean, they knew what they were doing, right? Obviously it's like, I think everyone involved understood the psychology of CP except him until the end. He said, they asked my opinion. They made me part of something and they were kind to me. Uh, It's impossible for me to hate. And he basically said, it's about belonging to something and I don't need to belong to this hateful shit. So then the movie ends with, uh, Anne goes back to I don't think she lived there. She goes back to where she lives and is doing, you know, he going to do another civil rights thing. And at the end of the movie, he finally lets black people come and get gas. And it's like, it, it is just amazing. You know, uh, it, it, it is unbelievable that there is this, it, it's just amazing how, Sometimes your only choice is to extend kindness to the people that hate you in hopes of changing them. You know, you're doing it. it, It's unreal. Anyway, so that ends. And I go, well, that was feel good. And I go, probably none of it's true. And then here come the Chirons. CP and Anne became best friends after that. He quit his job and they toured the country together speaking about civil rights. And I was like, wait, what? Like it got crazier than I ever thought it could. When he died, she gave the eulogy at his funeral. I was like, what? They literally became best friends. I was like sobbing. And I thought, could that happen today? Could someone from Charlottesville be talked to? Could they work for 10 days with a black person on some societal thing that needed to be changed? Could someone who brings a machine gun to a first meeting completely within 10 days change their mind? I don't know because, you know, again, they didn't have social media back then. They, it was like there was no one in authority telling them that there was reason to fear. And I think now we – I don't know. There was no news channel saying – these people are taking away your things. You know, oh, the illegals are coming. I, I don't know if that could happen today. But I, I wish the two of them were still alive. It really warmed me. I was, of course, embarrassed that I don't know this story. And then I read a lot of reviews about it, and all the reviews were shitting on it, and, oh, the white guy's the hero. But, I mean, I don't think he is the hero. And, and they didn't get enough into her character, I guess. She'd had an abusive husband, and she left him. So it was, of course, focused on the white guy. But... It is kind of a story about a guy who leaves the clan. I mean, it's not, you know, her arc is that she she does what she has to do to continue 
civil rights activism. And if it means having to be nice to this white guy and working with him, she's going to do it. But it's not like she had a change of heart because there was no change of heart for her to have because she was right. You know what I mean? She wasn't wrong to bring a knife to a meeting when this guy and this group he's part of literally threatened their lives every day. I mean, she was scared. So it's not her journey per se. It's their journey together and it's his, he's the one with the big turnaround. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I get, I get it that we don't need another Hollywood. White people are amazing. See how they help the blacks. I know that, but I don't think this was that. And then when I saw the documentary and saw what Anne said about CP, I thought, well, if Anne's down with giving him all this credit, then so am I. And whoever reviewed it, you know, great hot take, but enough. Enough! So that's how I started my tour, is crying on a flight and just thinking from 30,000 feet, what's the modern day take on that? What's the modern day story? Will we have something like that in this lifetime? And it inspired me. Is there any way, now please take this with a grain of salt, that I can use my comedy to change someone's heart in 90 minutes? And it, it inspired me to, to, I mean, not that I wasn't doing this anyway, but it inspired me to really continue to strive to approach things with kindness and not anger, even if I'm fucking raving lunatic angry. How can I express it so that people can hear it and understand and then, you know? I like when things unexpectedly inspire and surprise me. I had no idea what I was uh, about to watch, and I thought it was... I just thought it was a gorgeous film. Good work, everybody. And then I tweeted about it, and the guy that wrote the book tweeted back at me. And then we um, talked about how much we hate when people are like, I gave my friend your book. We're like, all right, don't tell me that you're uh, <laughs> We'd like to sell two copies, not just one. Oh, I know. I'm a bad person. I'm a selfish, greedy capitalist, right? Just trying to sell books up in here. So I'm leaving tomorrow for Toronto. And what I'm super psyched about, and I'm not kidding, is the amount of Everlane clothing I am taking with me. I have their, um, oh, I've got their soft long sleeve blouses. I've got sweaters and sweatshirts. I have their sort of stretchy uh, nice form fitting. They call them, I think it's called the work cut pant. It's great travel stuff. It doesn't really wrinkle. You throw it in your suitcase. I wear it on planes. I wear it in between things. It's like basically what I wear when I'm not on stage. Um, cause on stage I go, you know, I, I do a little more like punk, punky, bunky look. Um, so I'm living for my Everlane and they are a sponsor this week. And I, I use them, uh, I use the code as well because I want that free shipping. So let me tell you about your new favorite and it's good for the environment, your new favorite clothing company, Everlane. Now, go to everlane.com slash fun. That's E-V-E-R-L-A-N-E dot com slash fun and you're going to get free shipping on your first order. 
Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. There's even some options where you pay what you think is fair on the website. It's great. You'll see it. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. They sell directly to you, so their prices are 30 to 50% lower. And we're talking about things that are cashmere, sustainable silks, premium Japanese denim. I mean, it is made at the world's cleanest denim factory, Italian-made leather shoes, outerwear made from recycled water bottles, perfectly fitting Oxford shirts. It's versatile, simple, stylish, and again, made from quality materials. And they are radically transparent about every step in their process. With their responsible sourcing and ethical factories, you actually know where your clothes are coming from, how they're made, and why and how they price each item. No other company is as direct and open about their business as Everlane. Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And they look gorgeous. You look rich when you wear these clothes, point blank. Point blank. I don't know what that means, why I said it like that. But it's it's gorgeous. And it's really, really reasonably reasonably priced. Priced. Oh my God. And with free shipping, I mean, come on now. Everlane.com slash fun. Angelina Jolie is a fan. You know, when she's like, I'm just going to quit, go to another country, grab a kid. And she looks all like chic and she's got her Ray Bans on. She's got a cool coat. She's got some like really cool leather shoes. That's Everlane, peeps. See why everybody's talking about Everlane, including me. And that's why you're getting a special code, everlane.com slash fun. Do it. And, hey, look, as long as you're helping the world underneath your clothes, what's going on in those armpits, smelly boo? <laughs> you need to wear deodorant every damn day. I don't care. I don't care if you think you don't smell or you think your girlfriend or boyfriend likes the scent of your musk. I don't think so. I don't like it when I'm sitting next to you on the airplane. Go get yourself some deodorant you human beings. The, the globe is heating up. You're sweating more. Get some deodorant. Now, take care of your body. It's the only place you have to live. Don't just grab any deodorant. Check out Native. They offer safe, simple, effective products that people use in the bathroom every day. They create tons of products with trusted ingredients and trusted performance. They've got over 7,000 five-star reviews from their customers. Their products are formulated without aluminum, parabens, and talc. They are filled with ingredients found in nature like coconut oil, shea butter, tapioca starch, and all of these things are antimicrobial. They're, they are moisturizing, and they absorb wetness. Made in the USA, girl, with ingredients thoughtfully sourced from around the world. No animal testing, free shipping, and returns. I use Native, and I travel a lot, and I do model fit classes. I do cardio people, and it keeps me smelling good. So go to Native deodorant.com and use promo code fun during checkout you're going to get 20 percent off your first purchase now here's how it works and and don't just take my word for it the today show women's health l good morning america nylon everyone is raving about native now here's the deal they have fewer simpler ingredients so you know everything that's in their deodorant Aluminum may be linked to some serious health ramifications, including breast cancer and Alzheimer's. Although Native is priced at a slight premium when compared to conventional deodorants, it's safe and effective. And you're going to get 20% off today, so who cares if it's a little more expensive? It's going to even out. And it's shipped right to your door. You don't have to go anywhere. 
That's the best part. Something for everyone, lots of different flavors, men and women, coconut and vanilla, lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, and eucalyptus and mint. No risks to try. Again, free shipping. I mean, free returns and exchanges in the USA. So if you subscribe, and you're going to save 17%. That's $2 per stick. And Native can be conveniently delivered to your door every one, two, three, or four months. You pick it. So let's do this, people. NativeDeodorant.com, promo code FUN, 20% off your first purchase. Oh, hey, Jen, why don't you describe another movie for 75 minutes? Shut up. So. Ugh, I was like at a weight that I was like almost happy with and I had like three pounds to go and then I land in New York and I'm just like. I like went off my acid reflux diet like I'm supposed to be really trying to stay healthy on tour because. You know, my immune system, it's bad for the acid reflux, which is bad for the voice. And like New York, I was just like, I'm going to have pizza after I eat dinner at midnight. I mean, what is that behavior? Whew. But, you know, I was, you can't, you can't tour during PMS and I was getting some bad news. It's been a fucking hard career year. I'm getting so many no's about everything. Every year I just like. Oh, I want to do this. Oh, that would light up. This year, I'm just like, oh, boy. All these comedians who think they're being canceled. I'm like, I think I'm actually being canceled. <laughs> and I didn't even have the pleasure of saying anything offensive to do it. Um, <coughs> sorry. So I was trying to take a sip of water away from the microphone. And that took way too long. So... But I get to New York. Now, my sister, Gail, who works 24-7, she's got horses. Like, that's her job. She takes care of people's horses. Whatever. I was like, you're going to regret not making the effort to take one day off to come to New York and go with me to the wrap-up show. Just in case Howard retires in two years or something. So my sister came with me and uh, I, I did the wrap-up show on September 10th. I specifically, my show was on the 11th at the Bell House. I specifically asked, dear friend, and I don't know if he does produce the wrap-up show, but he produces a lot over at Howard Stern. Steve Brandano, for those of you who are Howard Stern fans, he's the one they're always making fun of. Oh, Lago! <laughs> It's my favorite thing when they make fun of him. Um, he's an awesome dude. So anyway, I was like, Steve, I got to do it not on the 11th because I don't want to take an elevator. I don't want to be in a skyscraper kind of high rise on September 11th. Not that I thought it would be a target at all. I just, it would make me extra anxious and I'm already freaker deaker about going up those floors. So I take a dissolvable clonopin, I get through it, and I was actually fine. And, oh, it just, they're such great guys. Gary was so nice to my sister. But it was so funny, I walk in, Gary goes, hey, hey, um, you have a Peloton? He goes, I picture you as someone who has a Peloton. You know those Pelotons, like that home bike thing that's, I don't even know what it is. There's a giant computer screen and a home bike. I go, I have an apartment. I don't even know where I would fit a Peloton. But I hate 
exercise bike shit. It, it's all, it's just not the right workout for my body. I don't need my legs and butt to get any more like muscled up. Like I'm trying to lean it out. Um, it dry, I fucking hate anything bike. I hate soul cycle when everybody was boycotting it. I was like, I've been doing that for years. So Gary's just so funny and so random. I just live for him. So but he was so nice to my sister, John Hine. We weighed in on the, uh, I forget what we were talking, oh, we were talking about on that episode, you know, the expression jump the shark. This guy, John Hine, invented it, and it was based on the episode of Happy Days where Fonzie <laughs> jumped over a shark or something on his motorcycle. And then that episode was so ridiculous, the show was just sort of downhill or different from there, and so John named it Jumping the Shark, and it became this big website, and then he sold it for, I think it was millions, he won't say, but anyway, that's now in the lexicon. Jumping the Shark, oh, that show jumped the shark when this happened. But he was explaining on the Howard Stern show that day that the company that bought Jump the Shark from him now owns the rights to it, but they sort of let the website die. So John's just like shit out of luck in terms of, you know, he wasn't trying to run it anyway, and I think he made his bones on it. But at the end of the day, it's like I really related to him selling something before the internet was a huge, huge thing. Like it could be an app now and a game, you know, JTS, Jump the Shark. I don't relate. I've never sold anything to the internet that got – but I'm saying there's so many things that I see up-and-coming people doing now that I go, I did that too, but oh, there's no tape of that material. I can't prove it. Okay, no, no, no. Get famous with that joke. Oh my God, we all did that joke in the 90s, but we can't prove it. It's so frustrating. So um, I know that's not the same thing at all, by the way, but enjoyed wrap up. It was fun. I mean, I'm assuming my sister had fun, you know, and she got to see all the behind the scenes goings on and uh you know, it's the next best thing to being on Howard Stern. It might even be better because there's no pressure to entertain Howard. I think I would be like full on having a panic attack if I ever had to sit on that couch and do an interview because A, I would be so high up <laughs> and B, just terrified that I wouldn't be entertaining Howard. But I'm one of those people who I'm just convinced that if anyone who listens to the show gave a fuck about me in the sense that you just have to be a big celebrity or go on and say shocking and outrageous things. But if the show was neither that and it was just conversations with people who love to talk about therapy and talk about their upbringing, he would love me as a guest. But that's not what the show is. I mean, yes, when he interviews a famous guest like a Stephen Colbert or Conan, they do end up talking about therapy stuff. But you have to start from the place of like, oh, my God, this is like a famous person talking about therapy. It's not like here's a comedian you probably don't know talking about therapy. Most people don't care. So. Speaking of which, so that we were talking that day, um, Sal Governelli, who's on the show, this is again only for my Stern fans, but he had quit vaping that day. And anyway, Steve told me behind the scenes, he was like, we might have to go to LA. Sal might be going. He's got a terrible fear of flying. And so I was like, let me talk to Sal. Let me talk to Sal. I've, talk, I've met Sal a million times. My sister was like, Sal's so good looking. I mean, I don't think she wants to date him. That's what I'm saying. But Sal is an objectively good-looking guy. And he's, like, tiny and thin and in really good shape. Um, my sister was like, I thought he was, like, this big slob. It's like, you know, you hear people on the Stern Show on the radio and you assume that. But, like, he's really adorable. So 
and actually really nice. And so I, uh, I was telling Sal all about dissolvable clonopin. I'm like, you got to get into it. So now I'm afraid that he'll get a prescription and he'll die and then it'll somehow be my fault. So we'll see what happens. I don't normally tell people what to do, but man, has that just changed everything for me when in the moment I'm having a horrible panic attack. Um, you know, there's just sometimes like if you have panic disorder, you fucking have panic disorder. You can meditate all you want. You can know all the reasons why, but 10% of the time you're just going to have a panic attack and you got to let it ride. You know, um, I have done a really good job of preventative. I'd say 90% of my living is to prevent them. And uh, I take all the necessary precautions when I know I'm going to be in a situation that could bring on a panic attack, which is usually travel, being stuck in certain travel devices, be it uh, planes or cars, not getting enough sleep, heights, whatever. And I know all the things, I do all the things, but again, everyone's, well, it's like, look, you're just going to have a fucking panic attack sometimes. That's also part of it is knowing how to have one. You know, there's a proper way to have one, which I won't get into because that's not what this episode is about. But, you know, at the end of the day, you need something sometimes to take the edge off. So we did that. Then we got dinner and I had my show the next night at the Bell House Oh my God. It was, I think it was my favorite show of the year. The audience was just so up for it. I mean, it was sold out. The laughter was crazy. It was just made me so happy. Just made me so happy. And after the show, I did a book signing and it was just tough though. I know so many people in New York and everybody wanted to come backstage. And it's like, it's a lot for me because I can't really talk to you after the show because I got to do the book signing. I have to get off stage after doing a 90-minute set. I have three minutes to get to the book signing because people start leaving. I'm like, you know, let's buy books, people. You know, if they if they think the line's going to be really long to wait in and they're waiting for me to come out, like, I got to get right out there. And then it's like, I, I don't think people I know really notice this. It was, it was way worse in Boston, but it's like, guys, I just talked for 90 minutes and I'm a shy person. I don't like going and doing the book thing. I mean, I like it in the sense that it makes it feel real. I connect with the people. They tell me stuff. It warms my heart. But I'm not comfortable. You know, I mean, I'm not uncomfortable. I'm not nervous. I'm just, I'm done with myself for the night. After I do 90 minutes, I don't want to hear my own voice. I don't want people looking at me anymore. I don't want to hear that I'm good or great. I mean, it's so nice to hear, but I, I've had enough attention and I need to go away. I don't want to go out. I just need to now do the opposite of being on stage, which is being alone in my hotel room watching HGTV. And, you know, I can't wait. I'm like living for that moment. I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And uh, just lots of people in my life are like, you going out after? I'm like, no, I'm, I have to go to Boston the next day. And like, I'm working, you know, I can't be burning the candle at both ends. I could be, but, you know, there's a level of success you have to have to be able to burn the candle at both ends. In other words, you have to have so much money in the bank that if you burn the candle at both ends and God forbid have to somehow cancel a show because you get sick, you can afford it. I can't really right now because I haven't been doing a lot of other work or you have people helping you. Like I'm my own everything, you know, um, you have a staff of people, you have a private jet, you have someone buying you things. Like I have to do every detail of everything and there's not, there's like eight hours to sleep and I need those eight hours because I'm hitting the ground running the next day 
doing all my own social media, doing my own everything. Then plus like writing assignments that I have, you know, like pitching shows. I'm like still working with, you know, I'm still doing a million things, returning emails, blah, 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 doing press. So there's, it's not just the show. It's you've, by the time you see me hit the stage, I've, I've done either eight to 11 hours of a full day involving travel and like all the other shit I do. So it's really the end of the day for me at that point, that show, boom, mic goes down. That's it. There's no going out after that does not interest me. Um, but my doctor, Jonathan Aviv, my great vocal doctor from New York that saved my voice so that I could do my second Netflix special, taught me all about the acid reflux stuff. He is the nicest guy. He comes backstage. He tells me he's got a whole new book about cooking with acid reflux. You can make tomato soup. It's coming out. I told him I would tell everyone about it so they can pre-order. I'll, I'll mention it another time because I don't have the, his card on me. But he just sends me this beautiful text after the show. Um, I just like, who becomes friends with their vocal doctor? Me. But he's just so kind. you know. And he, I don't see him anymore as a patient because I don't need to. But uh, yeah, he just sent the nicest thing that was like, oh my God, I have so many texts on my phone. I'm quite popular. It's almost overwhelming. Jen, what an amazing show. You elevate stand-up to a new dimension. Hilarious, poignant, fresh, and enlightening. Thank you. Like, what a sweetheart. Who does that? Um, so I feel very lucky. There's so many people in my life. It's too much. So then um, I get to Boston, and I'm staying at a hotel. I'm, I get in the day before my show. My two childhood friends, Shauna and Terry, they wanted to have dinner. And, and this is what I love about them. They have kids. They have jobs. They have lives. And they just get shit done. They texted me two months ago and that they know I need to plan in advance. And they're like, can you have dinner the night before you show? Are you in town? I'm like, yep. They're like, we'll take care of it. They're like, boom, seven o'clock. We have a reservation. Here's the place. I'm like, now that is friendship. So I met them out. And my fr friend Terry got this ginormous tattoo, like the size of, I don't even know what, what, um, uh, a small saucer on her arm or I could just say it takes up most of the space between her elbow and her wrist and I was like what the fuck is this giant birdhouse and she and her husband got the same one but it was just so cute I was like you're 45 and you got your first tattoo and you get this giant thing that would like totally disqualify you for like some jobs I think I don't even know maybe it doesn't anymore but I got my little tiny star tattoo f from my 45th birthday that I ended up getting a star like you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star, like a five point star, like a kid would draw. I didn't end up doing the North star because as it was pointed out to me by a friend I was talking to, he was like, Jen, it's going to look religious because the North star is like a mythology about religion. And like the real North star doesn't, I don't know. Oh, you're right. I don't want to, not there's anything wrong with being religious, but I wouldn't tattoo a cross on my arm. You know what I mean? And also I feel like in the wrong light, it can look like Nazi-ish. So I was like, Okay, I guess at the end of the day, I have to admit, I just want a little star. <laughs> I'm a girl who wants a star tattoo. Sorry. <laughs> but I was like, Terry, what did your dad say? She's like, oh, he basically disowned me. He was like, blah, 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 blah. And it's so funny because my parents were always like, oh, Terry's parents are so liberal. They're probably not even home. Like her parents were just like, yeah, if you're 14, you can have some friends over and we'll be at dinner. You can be home alone for a while. My parents thought that was outrageous. They're like, you can't go to Terry's house unless her parents are home. I was like, what? And now, 
So in my mind, Terry's parents are these like loosey-goosey liberal people. And then as we're talking, she's like, what are you talking about? They're totally old-fashioned. And my dad's like super upset about the tattoo. And I go, oh, my God, this is yet another moment where I get to take the brain I had at 17 and reprogram it and go, no, this is the truth. That was your mom's thinking that they're these loosey-goosey liberal people because they aren't as strict as you. But at the end of the day, her parents are still people from the 60s. And it doesn't mean that they're, you know, uh, wild people. It just means, yeah, they're, you know, and, and, you know, to my parents, people from the 60s, whoo, they were like, everyone was at Woodstock and everyone smoking pot and having free love because my parents were from the 50s. My parents were oh, 10 years older than everyone else's parents my age because they had me later in life. And so now, though, when you say people are from the 60s, you go, yeah, that's also where fuddy-duddy types are from as well. The 60s was a pretty <laughs> repressed time. So anyway, it's just funny. And I was like, you have to come backstage and show my dad your tattoo and she's like, why? So yours doesn't look as bad? I'm like, exactly. He won't be as mad at mine. Now, I never showed him mine. He never noticed it. My dad's getting a little bit out of it. But I showed my mom in the when they came to the hotel. And she was like, I, uh, I guess that's okay. It's trashy. I mean, tattoos look trashy. She's not wrong. They kind of do. Like, even I judge people with tattoos. And I have two of them. When I see someone with too many, I'm like, eh, do you hate yourself? You know what I mean? It's such a weird prejudice I have. But, um... So, yeah, so I had dinner with them. Fantastic. We were reminiscing about my stupid ex. I don't know if you guys know Flower Man. He's a dude. He's on CNN. I mean, he's not like an anchor. He's a protester or someone, you know, your basic person running in front of the camera trying to get attention. And he was my ex in high school. I mean, we dated for like a week. I just always had a crush on him. And then actually later in life, he was like, oh my God, I have a crush on you back. I was wrong, but it was, it was too late. And his name's Rod and he was so adorable. You can't even believe and like no beard, like just a clean cut little face. And he was this crazy rebel and he was really funny and artistic. And my parents hated him. Oh my God, I was not allowed to hang out with him. And I had gotten in trouble all the time for hanging out with him. He was the guy that lived in his parents' basement. But when you're 16, that's cool. It was like he had his own apartment. There was a bathroom down there and a living room and a bedroom. And we would go over there and we would watch movies like Sid and Nancy, the monkeys movie called Head. We'd watch Pink Floyd, The Wall, like... We just, or we'd watch the Young Ones, that punk rock show uh, about from from Britain. I mean, we were cool. We were cool, weird kids, and so you know, you'd have like a bunch of people over, and I always had a crush on him. And uh, he did stage crew the year that I did the musical, and I was just like, oh my god, I get to be around him all the time. And he always had, he's that guy that always had like magic marker all over his hands and paint because he was creative and I was painting and he's gorgeous, like beautiful, does beautiful art, but kind of a lost soul. You know, he, he, I think he went to Rhode Island School of Design, but then just never really, I don't want to say amounted to anything. That's not what I mean at all. Just, he just didn't apply himself, didn't get a job. I don't know. Maybe he's fucked up. I don't know. I don't keep in touch. I want to, you know, keep him at arm's length. But, um, but man, did I just for years just loved him and he was a good friend. And, uh, but my parents were like, you can never date him. So that was basically, you know, what kept us apart was my parents. 
And, but thank God. But he did this thing once where he took, you know, so we were the freaky kids and the jocks didn't like us and we didn't like them. And he bought thousands of plastic forks. And the night before the big football game, he put them all in the football field and spelled out fork you as in fuck you. (laughs) Imagine doing that. He's that person that would do, or we'd come into the high school one day and all of the desks and chairs, I'm talking every classroom, hundreds of desks and chairs would just be outside. He had done that. He, w- he knew how to sneak into buildings. He bought a Christmas tree once and lit it, lit it up with Christmas lights, climbed to the top of the high school and put it not just on the roof, but on this like, is it called like a spire or something? Like a, like a big, you know what I mean? Like the pointy thing at the top. And the, the town could not get it down. Uh, I think it stayed up there for six months. It's in my high school yearbook. I, I, I wonder if I Google Needham High School Christmas tree on roof. Hang on, let me just try this because then, then I can post a picture. Um, tree on roof. Damn. I bet there's some kind of image of it because it definitely was in the Needham Times. Oh, well. Oh, well. Again, can't prove anything that happened in the 90s. So my point in telling you guys about him is that my mom had called me the day before I got to Boston and went, Jennifer, your ex, your friend there, I'm watching TV and there's this straight pride parade in Boston? What is that? I, I, and I go, it's straight people that are proud of themselves. She goes, oh, that's stupid. Well, anyway, your old friend Rod was arrested at the straight pride parade, and they put the camera right in his face and his beard. He's, he looks terrible. Now, he wasn't there. as he, he was there to protest it and whatever. But I remember years ago he reached out to me. He was in L.A. or something, and he was like, can you hook me up with your agent? Uh, and I think this was over a direct message on Twitter. And I was like, what? And he's like, I've been getting on CNN a lot as flower man. He would go to political protests and hand out flowers or something. I was just like, no, that's not a skill. <laughs> I mean, ugh, I can't even. He's probably like Earth's biggest Bernie bro, too. Anyway, so us gals were just laughing about that, having a good old time. Then I went back to my hotel, and I had to get up early in the morning, and I went and did Maddie in the Morning, which he's a Boston legend, and he's on this radio station called Kiss 108, and I used to listen to it growing up. And it was just such classic Boston. You know, I pull up in my lift, and there's all these fire trucks there. So there was obviously a fire drill going on. And all these people, what I loved about the fire drill was everyone was outside because, you know, when you have a fire drill at your business, you have to stand across the street and wait outside. Everyone's smoking. I'm like, so many people in Boston keeping the dream alive, smoking cigarettes. And uh, But I knew that not everybody in the building had evacuated because Maddie in the morning was still on the air and so many other radio stations. So I said to some people, is this a fire drill or what is this? Can I go inside? And they went, no, we have these drills every two weeks. I go, oh, okay. So I thought, well, maybe it's nothing. And I went up to the front door and this woman goes, 
get back. You can't come in here. Get back. I'm like, all right, calm the fuck down. So in the fire, I'm calling the producer. I'm supposed to be on air. I'm like, I'm, I am on time, but I've been out here for 10 minutes because you guys are having a fire drill. And the producer of the show didn't know it because I don't know how. They, they weren't notified. So she was like, oh, well, thanks for letting us know. And so finally, they let me in the building. And I'm in the elevator, and all these people are in the elevator. And this is what I love about Boston is they go worst-case scenario, but they're not really freaked out. It's just how we think. It's like, how's your morning going? Well, I don't know. I could have cancer and undiagnosed. You're like, okay, great. Nice to see you. Is this your stop? All right, bye, Henry. You know, it's Boston. We're negative, and that's why we're so fucking funny. And I don't mean like me, but just even the people from Boston. Everyone's funny there. So we're in the elevator, and this guy goes, you know what? It's a day, it's the day after 9-11 and it's, fr- no, it was Friday. He goes, it's Friday the 13th. I bet they're calling in like a bomb scare to mess with us. And someone's like, oh yeah, that's a good point there, Danny. And someone else is like, we got these fire drills every two weeks. He's like, I think this one wasn't a fire drill. So I'm cracking up because there's just something about Bostonians. It's like, I got my Dunkins, I got my cigarette. What else can I drum up for some excitement around here? I know, I'll convince myself that there's some plot to have a bomb scare in the building on, you know, Friday the 13th because it's, you know, Friday the 13th is supposedly an unlucky day and it's two days after 9-11. Now, as a Bostonian, I know from being a Red Sox fan, I know the insecurities of Bostonians against New York. Why, they New York thinks they're better than us? They might be. <laughs> you know, we got, we got baseball too. You know, it's a, the rivalry. Like, we're in the shadow of New York City at all times. And, uh, and I fucking love Boston. I would totally move back there. But I was just thinking, like, it's classic Boston. Like, look, the guys, the 9-11 hijackers did originate. They went from, flew from Maine to Boston. And the 9-11 planes, like, I think one of them flew out of Logan. Like, you're part of 9-11. Now, they weren't crashing in any buildings in Boston. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you guys didn't get your terrorist attack moment. But. I think there's a little Boston shame that, like, they are part of 9-11, but our airport people did not stop these terrorists that were on a list and had box cutters. So <laughs> I don't know if there's a Boston shame there. but I So I go into Maddie in the morning, and I tell Maddie that there was a fire drill going on, and he was like, we were making jokes, and he was saying, I, I, some of this was off air, and he was saying, uh, Oh, well, isn't that nice that they're, they're, there's this fire drill and nobody told him and they're in there. You know, they, they could have burned to death, but we're kidding. But I tell him what the people in the elevator with their conspiracy theory goes, oh, of course, that's Boston. Worst case scenario always. So I'm cracking up. So I put that on my Instagram stories. Oh, my God, you people with the comments. I get crushed in my DMs. Everyone's like, there was a terrorist attack in Boston. It was the Boston bombing at the marathon. I'm like, calm the fuck down. That's not the same as a building getting blown up. It's bad. But what I'm saying is these guys were not, they're like, Bostonians are on edge ever since that. I'm like, okay, first of all, you're not a Bostonian because they're not. And if they are, it's the racist people that live in the suburbs that never go in the city anyway. But real Bostonians are not rattled by it. And the guys in the elevator were not having PTSD from the Boston Marathon bombing, which was outside. They were directly correlating that it's like 9-11 week and they were thinking about buildings being bombed. And why they thought a two-story radio station in Malden was going to get bombed, I don't know. But I know I was right about, about what I was saying. 
And so I wrote to everyone, yes, I know about the Boston bombing. I had a show the next night and I was in town and I donated my entire earnings to the one fund. So fuck yourselves. And I wasn't afraid to come fly in and do all this stuff, even though there was terrorists. So everyone suck a dick. Like it is a classically known thing that Boston lives in the shadow of New York and that Bostonians very humorlessly go to worse humor, humor, not lessly humorously go to worst case scenario. Nobody was actually having a Boston bombing PTSD. And so everyone tried to shame me with that. You don't know what we went through that day. I'm like, actually, I was there. You weren't. So I do. Thank you. Next. But see, I'm not going to do a Netflix special about this where I'm like, I get comments from people. I just do it on a free podcast and I make fun of everyone that's stupid. But in no way do I think I'm being canceled. Okay, moving on. Moving on. So I do my show. I had super fun times, Magoo. Um, too many people I knew backstage, very overwhelming, family, friends, everyone at once. Everyone wants to just come back. Everyone's like, I'll just come back for five minutes. I'm like, no, I get that you think five minutes isn't a long time, but there's 19 of you who want to do the same thing. And everyone's screaming and yelling at once. Everyone's drunk. You know, it's like uh, different energies, which is fine. I'm loved and it's overwhelming at times and it's gorgeous. Saw my old friend, Eugene Merman, a classic, a delight. Uh, the reason I got into stand-up. I mean, I would have gotten into it eventually, but he gave me my first spot. Hilarious Val Kappa opened for me. Dear old friend from Boston Comedy Days. Go see her if you live in the Boston area. But anyway, so my parents arrive. They're staying at the same hotel as me. They're staying overnight. Um, I see them for a little bit before the show. We're across the street from the cemetery that Paul Revere was buried in. And so I was like, hey, you guys want to walk across the street to the cemetery? So... You know, I've been very nostalgic. I miss my parents a lot because I only see them a couple times a year and they're older. Now, my mother, the first thing when I see her, she goes, are you wanting to be around us all the time because you think we're going to die? I go, yeah, pretty much. She goes, well, we are, but not right now. (laughs) Beautiful talk. And again, Boston, this is what you say right away. So we go to the cemetery and... um, we're just like marveling at the gravestones. Like it looks like the haunted mansion at Disneyland. Like you're just like tipped over and you know, the Paul Revere's actual grave is this tiny little thing. It's like a baby grave, but then they put this monument there and but it was really cool. I was reading about all these women that died and and they there was so many women that, you know, their husbands died first and they would remarry two or three times and then like start running their husbands' businesses. It was I was like, Who are these ladies? I'd like to see a show about them. Um, so yeah, in graveyard, always a good time. Always love to look at the ages. Everyone's like 26. They're like, what a full life they lived. (laughs) Um, some real old school, um, words on graves that I was like, what? Like F where it should have been S's. Like he was a Fefs and Drefser. I'm like, what the fuck job was that? Uh, I took my mom through my act. I was like, look, I do this bit about how you, it's a real weird, crazy bit that's like about incest and all this stuff. And she was like, oh my God. And I go, it's like half based in a true story about my family, but it's like, I put certain parts together to make it all one cohesive thing. And I go, do you think dad will be upset? He wouldn't even know it's happening. And so, um, I guess he kept asking during the show, like, what? I can't hear, which how do you not hear someone like yelling into a microphone? But, uh, I guess this, this really nice girl next to him was like explaining shit and someone shushed them, which they should have, rightfully so. And then afterwards, this guy came up to me in my line. He goes, I shushed your parents. I'm really sorry. I was like, 
that's fine. I guess he figured out later that they were my parents. But I don't think my dad heard that weird bit. But either way, he loved it. And it was funny because I got some feedback that um, there were some, like, fancy executives at one of my show. And one of them thought it was funny, but he was a little, um, he said it made him feel bad about being a man. He didn't know what women went through. I'm like, oh, not up, dudes. My 80-year-old dad's, like, super into it. Like, you know what I mean? You can all calm the fuck down. Um, so, yeah, that was it. And then, my, you know, I said goodnight to my parents. And... I don't know what I, I sat on their bed for a minute when my mom was like washing her face and my dad got on the bed. <laughs> it sounds weird, but we're all just kind of like lounging for a second. And we just started talking about the Holocaust. And I'm like, how are we not Jewish? I don't understand this. But, you know, my dad was asking me what I'm going to be doing in Europe. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to the Anne Frank house and then Oslo. And then my mom was, I'm reading a book about Audrey Hepburn and she feels so close to Anne Frank. And they asked her to play Anne Frank, but she said she won't. And do you know this person was a Nazi? And we're like, that person was a Nazi? So it was just a lot. And I was like, it's a miracle we stopped Hitler. Like, it's a miracle. Like, shit was going down. And I was like, is this like a fun topic of conversation at midnight? Like, how did this get, how do we get into this? But, uh, oh, the best part of the day is I kept talking about Dunkin' Donuts in my Instagram stories. And I got this email from someone going, urgent for Jen Kirkman and her team. I'm like, there's no team. She's like, we want to send Dunkin' Donuts to the show. So I wrote this woman back. I'm like, look, there's literally no team. It's like my family and me. And I'm like, you can send Dunkin' Donuts, but I don't really want donuts. I go, just, you know, bring, a, bring me a pound of coffee. I'll put it in my suitcase, take it home. So then my parents show up. I'm like, oh, my God, Dunkin' Donuts is going to send me coffee. My dad goes, why don't they send you donuts? I go, well, I told them no. He goes, what the heck? Write them back. Tell me you want donuts. So I wrote them back. I'm like, actually, I do want donuts. <laughs> anyway, so at my hotel, I get this delivery. It's a giant box of donuts, all different kinds. Two pounds, of, like two different pounds of coffee. They give me like tumblers and coffee holders and, you know, all coffee accoutrements. And then like gift cards to Dunkin' Donuts. Like It was like a whole shebang. And then they brought like a big thing of coffee, you know, those square boxes. Um, it was amazing. So I brought it all to the theater with coffee and donuts backstage for whoever was visiting. I love Dunkin' Donuts. Like I, I lived for that. I was like, that is making it. Like Dunkin' Donuts sent me something backstage. So I, I have to write them back and thank them. But anyway, so if Dunkin' Donuts is out there. Ooh, ooh. Oh, God. What? A tour story. I be, I believe. Oh, so then I've got to do this festival in San Diego called Kabu. And I get a text from Burt Kreischer. Like, I'm doing it Sunday afternoon. He texts me Saturday. He's like, this is awesome. I know right away I'm in a bomb. Like, if Burt's doing well, I'm not. Like, you know what I mean? It's more of like a party crowd. Like, I'm not, not every crowd is the same, but I was like, oh, what am I thinking? This is going to be in a makeshift room. Like, it's not a real theater. It's like a tent made to look like a theater. There's thousands of people that could potentially be there. So I was like, okay, thanks for the, you know, things. So I fly into San Diego from Boston, which makes no sense because I have to be in Toronto three days later. It's just how it all shook out. Like, the Kabu Festival paid well. The Toronto Festival paid well. I got to do both. Got to make a buck over here. So that's just how it is. So I go to Kabu. I get to San Diego that night. I go to bed. I get up the next day. I go to the show. 
And it's cute. Like, I have a little trailer. I always love a trailer. It makes me feel so showbiz. But I'm backstage. Taylor Tomlinson went on before me. I heard her backstage. She was crushing it. And I got out there, and I was just like, this thing took over me. It was like, they don't like me. They're not going to like me. Like, you know what I mean? The, after you see a comedian crush it after half an hour, you're like, we're good. Like, they don't, they don't need someone else. And I'm not like a crushing it comedian. Like, I'm kind of used to playing in front of my fan base, and I am doing these, like, longer-form stories. So I'm like, oh, I got to go into the old bits. So I started doing the, the old jokes. Oh, I did it as a young person. I don't want kids. But I can't, like, remember my old act. And it's just, like, going weird, and I'm like, Fuck, th- I don't feel like I'm getting laughs, but it, it there are some rooms where you literally cannot hear the laughs from the stage, but you can hear them if you're in the crowd, and it's a mind fuck. But I was backstage for Taylor, which is kind of the same as being on stage. I was like two feet away from her, and I heard her crushing it, and it didn't sound the same when I was up there. So I know that I didn't do as well as I normally do. Like, I'm, I'm not happy with that set. That's not indicative of what I can do. But I was like, literally like, oh my God, this is the longest half hour of my life. Like I can go on stage for 90 minutes in front of my fans and be like, this, I was like, I I kept looking at the clock. There's like a clock on the ground and I'm like 29 more minutes. Oh my God. (laughs) So I kept making comments during the set. Like, no, I'm funnier than this. You're not laughing. Who cares? I'm getting paid. Countdown to the thing, you know? And I get off stage and Bob Saget, I've never met Bob and his trailer's next to mine. And I'm like, Thank God Bob wasn't here. And I'm about to go in my trailer and he comes walking up. He's like, hey, you were awesome. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I love you. You're great. Like, I noticed you followed me on Twitter a while ago. Um, it's funny. There's a rash of older guys who found out who I was because of the Louis C.K. scandal. And then they all watched my stuff and they decided they liked me. <laughs> and so it's kind of funny. Um, so he... He gave me this, it was so funny, he gave me this weird, like, old guy pep talk that I don't think Bob realized that in my own way, I'm in a bubble, because I have a fan base that likes what I do, and I have, I'm not often challenged anymore performing in front of people that don't know me and that want shorter jokes, so I was a victim of success. Like, I wasn't putting myself down, like, oh, I'm not a funny comic, I was putting myself down, like, oh, I'm a lazy comic, like, I'm not... I'm not, you know, there's this notion that we have to be able to make everybody laugh. And if you're just performing for your fans nowadays, it's bad and blah, blah, blah. And so I kept being like, no, 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 Bob, I, I'm, I bombed. That was bombing for me. And he's like, you did great. I thought it was funny. And, and he's like, see, you got to. So he was giving me some pep talk, which like didn't apply really. And I was like, but you have to stop talking. But I basically was like, dude, look, like, I'm not going to fight you on this. I appreciate you think I'm funny, but you don't need to, he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I go, dude, I did this for the paycheck. I go, I got really going to tell you. He goes, but he did say a cool thing. He goes, you're mad at yourself because you weren't, he finally figured it out. He goes, you're mad at yourself because you weren't who you wanted to be out there. Like you did what you thought they wanted and then you thought they hated you. I go, yes. I hate when I do that. Such a rookie mistake. And then I think he thought, that I was saying I was a rookie. He's like, well, when you get to be my age, I go, no, I'm not a rookie. Oh, whatever. But let the old guy give advice. I mean, he's not old. He's such a sweet man. He's such a kind person. And um, he was lovely. So, but we were talking and, and we did have like a quick conversation about cancel culture. I was like, it's not a thing, Bob. Nobody's getting canceled. He's like, oh yeah, Dave Chappelle had a really hard time with his, you know, 
life for the last few years. I go, what's the hard time? You get a, three specials, tens of millions of dollars. He's like, got a lot of backlash. I go, oh, he's fine. I mean, everybody calm down. But it's fun. You know, it's fun when comedians actually hash it out with each other in real life because there's such a respect and a kindness. This whole online culture where we just talk the way in ways we would never talk to each other is so bizarre. So it's like, even as I'm disagreeing with him, I'm like, what a love dove. Like, what a cool guy. You know, like, he's just got his heart in the right place. And he's just got, like, a really different point of view about, to me, about who's suffering and who isn't, right? But I guess at the end of the day, what I'm saying is it's good to talk to humans face-to-face. So um, <laughs> we're the new CP and Ant. No, I'm kidding. But it was, it, he was just lovely, and I was just like, you know, he's, he said something that was really helpful. He goes, you're an artist, and so if you, were, if you were a painting, but you were also able to stand back and look at yourself as a painting in a gallery, and someone walked by and went, I don't like it, you'd say to them, well, this is what it is, so you can like it or not, but it's still art. And he's like, so you didn't do your art today, that's what I'm hearing. You got to go up there, and if you're going to bomb because you're not their cup of tea, then just go be you. You have to represent your art and be your art. So get out there and just be you. And if you're bombing, be like, well, I guess they don't like this, but this is what I do. He's like, instead of thinking, oh, get them with these old jokes and this short joke, and then just being like, I don't even know anymore. You know, and, and audiences, even if they're drunk ding-dongs, there's this group think, and it becomes this hive mind, and it becomes quite intelligent, as intelligent as... And I mean intelligent, not like smart or dumb, but I mean almost like a um, uh, on a spiritual level of intelligence, intuitive, right? It's like they know that you're not being yourself. So why, if I'm not bought into me up there, why should they be? And then I'm mad. Why ain't you like this? You know, and, and it was very cool. I'm always still learning these lessons. I, I go into this mode and it feels ancient because of how I used to be when I first started out. Certain crowds, they'd be like, they're not going to like me. And I might have been right. So I would do some other weird move and they wouldn't like me anyway. So anyway, it was fun to meet Bob. He was really sweet and um, yeah, it's cool. Like it's, I actually <clears throat> can't believe people know who I am that are like, you know, people I watch on TV when I was younger. I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not out yet. I'm not canceled yet. Um, so Next week, I'll be at the, uh, my next podcast will be live from Toronto, and I will tell my story of talking backstage at David Spade show today with Rob Schneider about the controversial statements he made about cancel culture and the SNL comic, and I think you're going to find this story really, really interesting because it was a really cool conversation, and again, there's just such a difference between online and real life. And there's nuance, people. There's nuance, people. Until next week, have fun.